Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Our nation's founders gathered in taverns and bowling alleys to enjoy lively conversation over a local brew, and so do we. It's a special Pints and Politics edition of River to River, presented by the Gazette and Iowa Public Radio. I'm Ben Kiefer. And I'm Erin Jordan. Hey there, Erin. Hi, Ben. We're in a, a different venue. Yes, we're at Spare Time Entertainment in Cedar Rapids. Very impressive. I've never been here. It's really nice. It, it, it's the most impressive bowling alley I've ever been to. Yes, I would agree. And, you know, our panel tonight has no shortage of talent to spare. Oh. Oh, God. Sorry. So, to introduce our panel, <laughs> we've got Todd Dorman, Gazette Insights and Opinion Editor, Althea Cole, Gazette Columnist, and Tom Barton, Deputy Des Moines Bureau Chief and Political Reporter for the Gazette. Well, let's start with what happened most recently. Last night, the fourth GOP presidential debate. Uh, We had uh, Nikki Haley uh, enduring a barrage from Ron DeSantis, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy also um, piling on against uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, We had Chris Christie delivering that straight, um, sharp talk he is known for. Time ticking down. There are a few direct attacks last night on Donald Trump who leads by far in the polls, we know. So let's start off with that. Um, uh, winners and losers in, in last night's debate. Uh, Tom Barton, would you like to start us off with your observations? Yeah, uh, so I guess my first observation is, do Burns from Canada to not name Donald Trump win votes? I guess we'll find out in a few weeks. Um, but I guess initial reactions um, from the debate were, um, you know, DeSantis did uh, kind of probably had his best debate performance of the cycle, um, kind of demonstrating a new feistiness, um, you know, befitting his kind of um, all or bust, all in um, in, in Iowa, um, you know, hoping to try and upend Trump uh, here in the uh, First La Nation caucus state. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Chris Christie um, uh, came loaded and, uh, you know, was trying to recapture the magic of his uh, 2016 evisceration of Marco Rubio during that um, cycle. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, it seems, continued to deliberately alienate seemingly everybody else. Um, Nikki Haley um, continued to be polished and prepared. Um, She avoided any obvious stumbles that could jeopardize her momentum, um, even as she, um, you know, seemed to get the front-runner treatment um, from everybody else on stage and taking a lot of those attacks and barbs from uh, uh, Governor DeSantis and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. But I guess overall, kind of the indisputable thing is I don't think anything happened last night that really changes the fundamentals of the race. Um, And the fact that Donald Trump still seems to be on kind of this glide path to the GOP nomination. Um, And um, 
you know, it, it, it seems clear that uh, Trump lost nothing from not participating. Again, um, he remained kind of um, a main character even in absentia, um, you know, while avoiding, again, the potential pitfalls that come with actually having to um, subject himself to the cross-examination and giving oxygen to um, uh, his rivals. Um, so those are my main thoughts. Althea? What are my main thoughts? Well, uh, I find it interesting that your question was who won the debate. And that uh, brings up a point that I've been making recently. Debates, what are debates supposed to be about? Are they supposed to be about the exchange of ideas to educate and inform voters on where the candidates stand? Or are they performances? Mm -hmm. We use uh, phrases like performance a lot. And we ask questions like who won a lot for for excellent reasons. They're spectacles, okay? They're covered on national TV. I watched it last night on News Nation. Um, and as a result of that, because it's about performance, you know, were we, were we not entertained? You know, I think my favorite part of the night was when Vivek Ramaswamy told Chris Christie to go have a nice meal, because if you're wondering if that was a fat joke, it absolutely was a fat joke. Not, not, not saying I endorse fat jokes, except for um, Go have a nice meal and get off the stage, something like that. Look, <laughs> frankly, I'd like to have a nice meal right now, too, but I will do that when I get off the stage. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about performances, and that, given that it's a spectacle, I feel that debates anymore kind of take more away from the actual point of the actual debate, and they turn not only the debates, but not only the caucus, but the election itself into something kind of different. And when is the last time we didn't think that politics had become a clown show um, or a just this ridiculous circus? So I don't know. My my thoughts are, you know, I, did I watch the debate? Yeah, I went to a debate watch party for you know the food and my friends, and to watch the debate and see what everybody else was thinking. So I am equally as guilty of it. But those are my thoughts, Ben. <laughs> so, so who you Todd think won? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we learned a little bit from the debate. I mean. Nikki Haley was taking a lot of attacks, and if they're tearing you down, that means you must be up. So that's probably good news for her that she's become the focus of, of sort of the battle for that second place, uh, you know, that the, the sort of distant second place, I guess, at this point, of being a, a, a Trump alternative. Uh, you know, we... we uh, Chris Christie told us that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is the was it the biggest blowhard in America. Was that? I think that's. He's full of those. I think I think that's what brought on the uh, go have a nice meal. Was it like the? Wasn't it the first debate? He said something about like Vivek GPT or, or sounds like Chat GPT or something like that. Yeah, 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 and you know, there are as I as I know in my job there are literally thousands of people out there that are internet trolls who, you know, basically criticize us online, make, you know, they're, they're just everywhere, everywhere you look, my feed, my email, all, all the political sites. So it's really, it's nice that they have a candidate in Vivek Ramaswamy. He's, I think he's, he's, the, he's the, the first troll online troll presidential candidate. 
CNN announced today it will hold a Republican presidential town hall in Des Moines January 10th, five days before the caucus. From your past experience, Todd, do you think that these debates tend to, tend to change as they get closer to the caucus date? And do you think that Trump might show for that debate? I, I don't think Trump will show. I mean, there's no evidence that not showing has, has hurt him much. I mean, he should show. I mean, but he hasn't yet. And so he gets to, you know, play the candidate that's above the fray. Uh, but yeah, the, what changes is, is that the debates, like we saw last night, I mean, that was a pretty fiery debate. That was a, you know, send the kids to bed sort of debate. We don't want, it, we don't want you to watch politics like this. And I think as you go, especially this is like five days before the caucuses. So this is their last shot at, you know, making any difference. Will it make a difference? Probably not. I mean, it, it just, it's, debates are funny because people watch them, but I don't know how much it sways anyone. Uh, but sometimes there are moments that can, that can kind of uh, stick in voters' minds. So, but yeah, I would expect it to be, well, it sounds like based on the, on the qualification threshold, this is gonna, only gonna be like uh, uh, DeSantis and, uh, and, and Haley. Wow. Are the only ones that are going to qualify? Tom Barton. No, uh, he just stole what I was going to say. I was just going to. I was just going to mention that the, the only thing that that will change with the CNN debate is um, the qualifying criteria. And so you're going to have fewer candidates on the stage. So um, for candidates to qualify for the CNN debate on January 10th in um, at Drake University, um, they have to be polling at 10 um, percent. Um, in, in, in one of three national and or state polls, and one of those three polls, you have to be polling at 10% um, in Iowa among like the caucus goers, and so, you know, that's That's gonna... the Republicans version of the uh, viability test that the Democrats would have at their yeah. caucuses. So that's, so I mean that right now, if you look at the polling as it stands right now, you know, that would knock out Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, as Todd mentioned, it's probably unlikely that Trump will participate in this debate since he's skipped the other ones and doesn't really seem to be an incentive there for him to, 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 to do so. Um, and so potentially you could just have a debate between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let's focus a little bit more on the, the duel, if that's what it is. According to polls, it is for second place, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Um, the polls showing that Nikki Haley has gained, maybe on the verge of surpassing uh, DeSantis uh, as uh, Trump's principal rival way back, though. Um, I, I wonder, uh, for DeSantis and for Haley, thoughts on a, a plausible path to the GOP nomination. What could happen? Why are they in this race? What do you imagine their, their campaign staff is saying or they are saying to themselves about what position they hope to attain by staying in this race. If there is a path to the nomination, what, what might that look like for either of them? Well, it's, it's, it's not exactly clear. I mean, in Iowa, the, the, you know, in the caucuses, the whole thing is, is generally is about expectations. So if DeSantis or Haley does better than we expect, and if maybe Donald Trump does worse than what his polling suggests, then whoever, whoever wins in Iowa between DeSantis and, and Haley will have a pretty good claim on being the, being the alternative. Uh, you know, how, how that translates 
into the into the following states, New Hampshire and South Carolina and places. Although I get a sense that Haley may have uh, a little better sort of broader campaign operation, so, you know, beyond Iowa, whereas DeSantis has really thrown all those eggs into this basket. And, and so if, if it came down to Haley and Trump, I, I think Trump would win the nomination, but I think that would be a, a fairly interesting, interesting race. But he just has such a tight hold on such a large group of Republican voters, it's, it's really tough to crack that. You're listening to a special Pints and Politics edition of River to River from IPR News in partnership with The Gazette. It was recorded yesterday evening, December 7th in Cedar Rapids. We'll be back in just a moment with more. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And we're back with this special Pints and Politics edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Yesterday evening, we gathered in Cedar Rapids before a live audience, this time at Spare Time Entertainment. Our panelists were all Gazette journalists. Columnist Althea Cole, Deputy Des Moines Bureau Chief Tom Barton, and columnist and opinion editor Todd Dorman. At this point in the conversation, my co-host, Aaron Jordan of the Gazette, had a question about former President Trump's relationship with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. Former President Trump, um, his campaign released a new new ad this week. Um, just it, it's a, like a minute of Governor Reynolds, Governor Kim Reynolds, just uh, praising him um, in past videos. Um, now, so Reynolds has endorsed uh, DeSantis. So I'm wondering how effective is this ad, and what has Reynolds said about why she switched her support from Trump to DeSantis? I think it's an effective ad for, for Trump supporters who are upset with um, the governor's endorsement and, um, you know, breaking her initial pledge to remain neutral in keeping with longstanding tradition of, of Iowa governors. Um, in, in terms of um, breaking her pledge, um, what um, the governor has said is, you know, she said, uh, I supported um, Donald Trump in his administration, um, worked closely with his administration, supported a lot of his um, policies, um, but um, now it's time to turn the page from Donald Trump, right? And it's time to look toward the future and look toward the future of this Republican Party and who the best, po- best person is now in the moment to be able to lead the party forward and um, deliver on its vision and agenda. Um, and given the um, baggage that Donald Trump has, um, you know, given all of the... Um, criminal indictments he's facing and charges and um, again just just all of that that baggage and all of those legal issues um, standing in the way you know she said that uh, it's it's time to support somebody who is going to be able to um, 
beat Joe Biden um, in, in 2024 um, and, again, continue to carry forward the party and its agenda and policies and um, believes that Governor Ron DeSantis is the best person to do that, given what he's been able to deliver and accomplish um, as governor in Florida. Um, you know, and, and, again, noting that, uh, you know, a lot of the um, legislative victories, accomplishments he's had in Florida mirror um, those that Reynolds has delivered here in Iowa and pointing out that um, in the 2020 midterm elections, um, you know, the red wave that Donald Trump was promising to help deliver the Republican Party and that some people were predicting and, and, and pollsters were prognosticating um, didn't happen, didn't pan out. But it did in Iowa, and it did in Florida, where you know DeSantis won a commanding uh, victory by 19 points, um, including in um, communities and among demographics that Republicans um, have traditionally struggled with. Um, you know, he I, I, did he end up winning Miami-Dade County, or at least he did. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so the pointing that, you know, look, we have um, a candidate, a nominee who is able to reach beyond the Trump base of supporters that this party is going to need, you know, if we're going to uh, beat Joe Biden and beat back and, and reverse um, some of his policies that they feel have been harmful and damaging to the country. Next, a question that was uh, prompted by uh, Stephen in our audience, and I'm sure many of the other uh, ones in our audience at this Pints and Politics special edition, reminding you, if you've just joined us via IPR, we're at Spare Time Entertainment in Cedar Rapids uh, this evening, recorded Thursday evening before an audience of dedicated uh, political junkies who can find a new venue uh, easily if they want to talk politics, and they did. They came out in droves here tonight. This is Stephen's comment here, uh, commenting about uh, uh, former President Trump telling Fox, uh, well, on a Fox News town hall in Davenport that he would not be a dictator upon returning to office other than day one. Um, <laughs> It highlighted Trump's remarks as another moment in which the GOP frontrunner showcased some undemocratic, some dangerous plans for a possible second term. Sean Hannity of Fox News asked the former president to say categorically that he would not abuse presidential power and retaliate against political opponents if elected next year. Both times when asked by Hannity, uh, the former president declined to give an outright denial. Panel, what do you th make of his responses, his um, dodge here? Um, to what degree do you share concerns about authoritarianism should Donald Trump uh, regain the White House? Well, I, I don't know if anybody remembers uh, the several infrastructure weeks that were that were called during the Trump administration. I have a feeling that that's going to be sort of the same with day one. It's going to just continue to happen. <laughs> you know, it's just, this is day one. I know it's not day one, but we're having day one again. <laughs> so I think I think there is. I mean, the idea that he's I don't even know what that exactly means. He's you know I'm sure executive orders and rescinding things and all of that, but. Uh, you know, you've you've got plans out there to to sort of clean out the 
the bureaucracy and replace them with people that are a little more loyal to the president. And, and so, I mean, I, th I think, I don't know, dictatorship maybe is the wrong word, but I think, um, I mean, Trump definitely is, would, would, wants to lead in an authoritarian fashion, and I think a lot of his supporters want him to lead that way. Althea? Look, day one, it's like Todd said, it's, it's mainly a bunch of executive orders and signing a bunch of things. You have your inauguration, you know, okay, you sit down in the office for a few minutes, you sign a bunch of fancy folders, you hold them up, you smile for the cameras, and then you get in your tux or your dress and you go to the inaugural ball. Okay, great. The thing is, if, if anything done by executive order is overtly authoritarian, it would either be thrown out in court, there is a process for that. If it cannot, if it survives any challenge, then my ultimate question is, how did a president in the United States of America, a government founded on the mm. concept of checks and balances, how could a president get that much power? Ultimately, a lot of power can be ceded to an executive branch by the legislature. So it, uh, it, by the legislature in the form of gradual laws passed little by little to give more presidential power. Um, I've got a friend uh, who was from Muscatine at one point, and he observed over the years that, yeah, little by little, the legislature, specifically, you know, senators and congressmen, they go there, they like their job, so they don't want to vote on anything terribly controversial if they think it is going to jeopardize their ability to be reelected. And so, oh, if, if this is something that I can vote to actually, you know, put on the plate of anybody but me, I'm going to do that. And that's how Congress slowly and slowly cedes a little bit of its rulemaking authority to the president. Um, which means that if this happens, you know, we're a government still of, for, and by the people, regardless of who sits in the White House. And ultimately, if we put too much power in one place, we are the ones who let it happen. I would like to know what the audience thinks of that. Are you, clap if you're comforted by the checks and balances that have sustained this country for, for over two centuries. If you are comforted, if you have faith in the checks and balances. I don't know, maybe six or seven clapping there. Clap if you're worried about growing authoritarianism. I, one of the things that I wanted to ask about, I had just heard on NPR last night to Althea's point, um, talking about just um, Trump supporters and their plan to um, replace many in the administration who are career uh, employees because they felt like during Trump's previous presidency, there were too many people saying no to him. You know, what do we think, what does the panel think about that? I mean, is that something that would be um, protested or, or would be raised by the courts? Or is that something that the president could do? Well, it, you know, all of this has always depended on whether uh, a president or really anyone, any governmental entity, uh, abides by a court ruling. And I mean, you've... You've heard, I, I don't know exactly who said it, I don't know if they were in Trump's camp or, or what, basically, that's like, well, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't have, a, doesn't have an armored division. So, I mean, so that's, we, we, and we've just always, that's been the norm, okay, the Supreme Court rules, and we respect that ruling, and we carry out the laws based on that ruling, but 
I mean, what what would happen if a president decides to just ignore the courts? I just I I don't know what the answer to that is. I know we have checks and balances, but uh, I mean, I don't I don't think. I don't think Donald Trump is that averse to causing a constitutional crisis. He thrives on chaos. So, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. We've got all these norms that people ad adhere to in the past. Maybe some of them are law, some of them are custom. And, you know, all that sort of gets thrown out the window sometimes when, when, when Donald Trump is making his plans. Pints and Politics edition of River to River from IPR News. Ben Kiefer with my co-host Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. We have our panelists, Todd Dorman, Althea Cole, and Tom Barton of the Gazette. And uh, we're here at Spare Time Entertainment in Cedar Rapids uh, this month. Let me just throw in um, the comment. Uh, I don't know how many saw this. From Kash, a gentleman named Kash Patel, he served in the Trump administrations uh, as their counterterrorism advisor on the National Security Council, also as chief of staff to the acting secretary of defense at that time, likely to serve in a senior national security role in any new Trump administration this week on Steve Bannon's podcast. Uh, talked about going after the media. Quote, we will go out and find the conspirators, not just in government, but in the media. Yes, we're going to come after the people in the media who lied about American citizens, who helped Joe Biden rig presidential elections. We're going to come after you, whether it's criminally or civilly, we will figure that out. So we have this continuing narrative um, that the, the election was rigged, completely unfounded by any facts, but it just happens to be a narrative that a substantial number of Americans believe. How does that play out as we had entered 2024 with courts in the crosshairs, the media in the crosshairs, and so forth, wherever they stand in the way? Well, I, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm, I'm going to be working remotely from uh, some sort of foreign country <laughs> at that point because I'd rather, I'd rather not be prosecuted. Uh, you got a bunker picked out somewhere? Uh, I don't. I don't. I've been working on it. You know, it's I'm trying to put it together my jump bag. <laughs> but it, you know, he, he called journalists. You know, he called us the enemy of the people. So this. This isn't a surprise that they would want to come after journalists. The thing is that they're, they're, if they're going to try journalists for telling the truth, that's going to be another test of the court system and whether it holds up and, and provides a check. Because, I mean, you, you, you can't convict or get a judgment out of a, from a journalist that was, you know, writing that the election wasn't rigged because that's. That's reality. I wanted to change gears a little bit. Um, U.S. funding to Ukraine is scheduled to run out this month, um, but the Senate can't agree on funding for Ukraine and Israel. Both Iowa Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst voted against a $111 billion spending package. It seems like the sticking point is immigration policy. What kind of border measures do these Republicans want to see? Well, um, I don't know what what the latest is because it seems like um, this is such a fluid issue that it changes, you know, day to day, week to week. Um, but uh, 
the the main thing that um, Republicans have targeted are um, President Biden's um, asylum policies in wanting changes um, to that, uh, wanting um, and also wanting changes to um, what they call the um, parole system. Now, this is not. It, it, it doesn't mean um, you know people who um, have been uh, criminally convicted or in are in are being paroled, but um, this has to do with um, individuals who um, are um, allowed into the country um, and have a, a sponsor family in the United States and um, are uh, able to to stay here. It's it's something that's granted to. Um, select countries like so for example um, in the past President Biden has used it for um, uh, refugees people fleeing Afghanistan and uh, Ukraine um, past presidents have, have have used this policy as well during the Vietnam War and for um, uh, refugees from Laos and uh, Cambodia um, etc but uh, a big sticking point, again, has been um, the asylum policies and Republicans feeling that um, uh, immigrants, migrants are abusing that asylum process and um, feeling that there should be um, stricter or a higher standard, I guess, um, for when you're screening these individuals, when they're claiming um, that if they go back to their home country, um, they'll be persecuted, that, that, that there should be, again, kind of a higher standard there to be able to prove that to make sure that people in their minds that they're not abusing the system. Another part of this equation in the Senate, uh, the impasse for border policy, uh, Ukraine aid, Israel aid, aid for Taiwan, for the southern border, uh, on the Israel, Israel part of the equation, Senator Bernie Sanders, among others, uh, says there should be now strings attached to further aid to Israel. For decades, Israel's had um, aid, significant aid from the U.S. without any strings attached. Uh, do you think the time has come uh, for strings to be attached? Will that be politically necessary to continue to provide aid to Israel. Yeah, let's talk about Israel. Sorry, um, I mean, it's a, it's a touchy subject. Um, um, Althea, yeah. Boy, can that be used as a political weapon in many, many ways, and not just related to the nation of Israel. Um, Ukraine, um, other countries we've supported in the past, so I don't know if it's a good idea, because once you do it the first time, it's much easier to do it the second time, and who knows what would happen next time? Who, who knows what country it'll be, what situation it will be? Um, it could be Taiwan, it could be, it could be a nightmare. This is Pints and Politics. Uh, we are at Spare Time Entertainment in Cedar Rapids. I see plenty of empty glasses on the table. We'll be back in just a moment with more Refresh Your Drinks. We'll be back in just a moment. Order some food. It looks like a nice menu out there, too. All right. We'll be back in just a moment. More Pints and Politics from the Gazette and IPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
We're back with this special edition of River to River from IPR News, uh, the Gazette and IPR sponsoring Pints and Politics uh, today coming from Spare Time Entertainment in Cedar Rapids, recorded on Thursday evening. Uh, Aaron Jordan, my co-host of the Gazette on our panel, Todd Dorman, Althea Cole, and Tom Barton. Welcome back. We talked a lot in the first race kind of about that, the horse race leading up to the GOP presidential caucuses um, with Iowa's First the Nation caucuses on January 15th. But looking at the actual caucuses themselves, I know that some of those plans have been um, released and we've been doing some reporting on that. What will the Republican caucuses look like in Iowa? What is the same and what is different from past years? What will be the same is that the presidential reports get made very, very quickly and efficiently, just like they did in 2020 and, more importantly, 2016. And that's not so much a slam at the Democratic Party for what happened in 2020, because believe me, Republicans in 2012, like, they have no room to talk. Um, so, frankly... That's the most important thing to the state party. Um, caucuses in the state of Iowa, um, they involve more than just um, the presidential straw poll, is what I call it. It involves uh, signing up for one's local party uh, center committee. It involves signing up to be a delegate at the county, district, and state conventions, and maybe starting on one's path to being a presidential uh, convention delegate. Uh, so there's a lot more that goes on at a caucus but then, you know, um, than doing the presidential poll, but yeah, that's definitely an important part. So if we can get that uh, reported efficiently, then woo. So um, there won't be many differences, at least on on the Republican side. Um, you know, it'll it'll be the the similar um, straw poll that Althea uh, talked about. Um, on the Democratic side, it is going to be less interesting. Um, <laughs> it's 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 going to be just strictly party organizing um, because Democrats have elected to um, do a mail-in presidential preference system this time and they won't be announcing the results of that until um, Super Tuesday on March 5th? Yes? Early March? Super Tuesday. Did Whenever get, that is. <laughs> early, early, early. It's on a Tuesday, I think. We were very helpful with that one, weren't we? Anyway, um, in, in, in early March. So, yeah, on the Democratic side, it's going to be incredibly boring on um, January 15th. Um, again, they'll meet in person, but it's just going to be um, party organizing activities, um, you know, electing representatives to... Um, the uh, uh, various uh, conventions, county conventions, and talking about party platform, party planks. Um, but while that's, while I say that that's boring, I mean it is an important party building exercise. I guess that's not to be overlooked. But um, you know, for national media and you know people who are paying attention to the horse race and, and what's going to go on, it's um, it's not going to be all that exciting or interesting. I believe the Libertarians also are caucusing on January 15th. Um, does anyone know what that's going to look like? No. Well, it's, <laughs> it's probably going to be a fairly small room. Yeah. Um, probably not a whole lot of locations. So state law does dictate certain things about how a caucus has to be run, when, etc. Um, it does not specify that each precinct, th these are precinct caucuses, but it doesn't mean that each precinct has to have their own individual 
meeting place, which is a really, really, really good thing. Sometimes Republicans have not been wise in how they group precincts together in locations. In 2016, that was a great example. They did this super caucus in downtown Cedar Rapids, and there were literally thousands of people um, body to body standing in the room looking for their precinct, looking to check in, and it was an absolute disaster. Um, libertarians will need to have multiple precincts in smaller locations because they do not have the organizational strength. They may be a major party, but they're still extremely small. And caucuses take volunteer work. That's one of the things I prefer a caucus over a primary because it's the expense of the parties and it is the work of the parties. Government should not be involved in that. Um, and so, Libertarians might have to drive a little bit farther to participate. I hope they do, because hey, you know, that's part of representative government. Whee! Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how that actually plays out for the Libertarian Party in Iowa. Althea, the, the last time I was at a Republican caucus, they picked up the little slips of paper in an ice cream bucket. Is that still, still possible? Well, I mean, you know, I could bring like a wine skin or something like that mm. and they could, you know, we could tear it open and carry it and that. But yeah, um, it's, it's very informal. We don't have like official ballots that we have to, you know, fill in a little circle. That's, you know, other work that I do at different times of the year for different people. Um, but yeah, there, there ultimately is this um, grassroots element to it, which I have always loved. Let's go to this question from our audience handed to us here. Uh, how might Kennedy, Manchin, no labels, etc., affect the elections? Uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, Joe Manchin, of course, uh, announcing that he would not run for re-election, a Democrat there in West Virginia. No labels, uh, a political organization that has risen with a mission to support um, centrism, bipartisanship, a, a common sense majority. Tell us, tell us about these, uh, these factors in our upcoming election. Um, Kennedy, Manchin, no labels. Uh, how might that affect it? We've got, uh, let me throw in there too as well, because Liz Cheney, uh, one of the most strident critics of Donald Trump, um, is weighing, she says, whether to mount her own third-party candidacy for the White House, vowing to do whatever it takes to prevent the former president from returning to office uh, on her big to book tour of her, her new book, Oath and Honor, A Memoir and a Warning. What about these independent voices? Um, how, how do they figure into your thinking here? Well, I, uh, Joe Manchin hasn't decided what he's doing yet, and no labels hasn't decided whether they're going to run a candidate. They, they've, they've claimed that if they think that that would hurt, if, if they think that they would help Donald Trump if they nominate a candidate, then they're not going to do it. Uh, so I don't know where they're going to fall. Uh, I, I don't think Liz Cheney is going to run for president because she's going to conclude that, you know, as many votes as she takes away from Trump, she may take the votes of some moderate Democrats who would feel, or moderate Republicans, who would feel like they had to vote for Democrats to stop Trump, and and that's, you know, the, the Democratic nominee is really the only candidate that's gonna have the ability to, to stop Trump if he's the nominee. So, and Democrats are having, you know, they're, they're having uh, nightmare flashbacks about Jill Stein, 
the uh, Green Party candidate who uh, certainly helped. Uh, Don't forget about Gary Johnson. And Gary Johnson, who uh, you know siphoned off enough votes that that it hurt Hillary Clinton in 2016. Tom, you reported uh, this week about a second Eastern Iowa Democrat who won't run again for their seat in the Iowa legislature, instead choosing to run in a local race. I don't know if two people's enough for a trend, but but what did they cite as their reasons, and and what do you expect? You know, do you expect more? Um, I mean, we'll we'll see. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if 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 we see more. Um, I haven't heard of, of, of anything at this moment. Um, but yeah, so uh, Senator uh, Todd Taylor, Democrat from Cedar Rapids, announced his uh, campaign Tuesday for uh, Lynn County Auditor. So the incumbent auditor, Joel Miller, a Democrat, has said he's not going to run for re-election in 2024. Um, but uh, Taylor's departure comes just weeks after uh, fellow Cedar Rapids Democratic State Senator uh, Molly Donahue announced that she's going to be running for the Lynn County Board of Supervisors. Um, and so in, in uh, uh, Senator Donahue's case, uh, said that she's looking to leave behind Iowa's Republican trifecta control um, of the governor's office in both chambers of the legislature and telling the Gazette that she feels that she can do um, a lot more for her community serving in a local seat as opposed to being in the minority um, in the Iowa legislature and, and not really being able to move anything forward there, um, again, because of that um, GOP trifecta. Um, so She can I, also get paid a lot more. Let's just put that out there. County yeah. jobs are nice and uh, yeah, the, you know, plush. It doesn't have to live in Des Moines well, four months of the year. Yeah, right. the, the, the six-figure salary is probably right. fairly I mean, attractive. Yeah. Uh, rather than sitting in the chamber watching you and your colleagues get bulldozed. Back to your point, to, to um, Senator Taylor, um, he served uh, nearly 30 years in the Iowa legislature, making him the second longest serving uh, Democrat, um, Democratic state lawmaker in the Capitol um, behind Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum. Um, and so essentially he said, yeah, well, he's not um, pleased about what's going on um, in the Iowa legislature. Uh, he said that he feels that he's um, had his turn at lawmaking and policymaking. Um, he's, you know, away from home 110 days a year and said that he feels it's time to be at home in Lynn County and focus on uh, things where he can continue to make a difference and can continue to serve the public. I just, I feel bad that the legislature is losing its last Todd. I mean, Todd Pritchard left, and now Todd Taylor, and we're just, there aren't a lot of powerful Todds out there. We're kind of culturally maligned. So maybe someday there'll be a, a, a Governor Todd. That would be, that would be something. It's Pints and Politics from... IPR News and the Gazette, a special edition, coming to you uh, in a recorded uh, version from uh, Thursday night. It's Spare Time Entertainment is where we are uh, in Cedar Rapids. Uh, before the event began, as people began filing in, uh, I, was, I was talking to many of the people in our audience, uh, quizzing them. Uh, I was handed a question, actually, the very first question of the evening from our audience, from David. Simply put, he writes, if not Joe Biden, then who? 
I mean, I, I think that there's definitely a possibility that um, you could have a nominee other than Joe Biden. Gavin Newsom's name gets thrown out a lot, but then you look at his debate performance with Ron DeSantis and thrown up some questions and, con and concerns in some people's minds about should we go with him? Should he be the nominee? Kamala Harris, I, I don't I don't see her getting the nomination. I don't see her being successful against Trump in, in a general election matchup. Um, yeah, I, I guess it, 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 it's a question mark right now. Um, and, you know, there are definitely, I think everybody is kind of waiting to see who might be able to emerge and who could do that, but um, nobody has kind of risen to the forefront yet. I wanted to turn um, to our state and local uh, a little bit more. After the November 7th local and school board elections in Iowa, the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board director said he and his staff faced an unprecedented level of harassing phone calls and emails, including some threats on their safety. And this was from Iowans on both sides of the political spectrum. You know, and this is for a group that is a watchdog of political campaigns. I wanted to ask, you know, our panel, is this kind of what we can expect from, for the future, just this kind of lack of trust of these organizations that are trying to monitor, um, you know, our campaigns and, and elections and that kind of thing? Probably is the short answer. Um, I think a lot of what allows the political discourse to be so inflammatory and toxic is the fact that we now live in an age where communication is at warp speed. And sometimes it's, it's you know, there's not a person on the other side at all. You're, you're going out into the Twitter and, you know, the Instagram and the Facebook and all that stuff. And that really makes it easy to say and do nasty, nasty things. Given that there is so much of that, I think we're in a new political age where that's not going to change. And the only control that any of us have is really over our own actions. I think really long and hard anytime I call a candidate or a campaign or a government agency because of the highly sensitive, highly toxic nature of political discourse because, yeah, it upsets me. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that you spent so much time cutting letters out of a magazine to put, to, to spell out a threat, that by the time you were halfway done, you're just like, ah, forget it, this is, this is way too difficult. <laughs> All right, well, now that I've got everyone laughing, I'm going to finish up the show with uh, our, our usual kind of light question. So this week, Time Magazine announced its Person of the Year. And it is none other than singer-songwriter Taylor Swift. So I wanted to ask our panel, if you had to pick um, an alternate person of the year, an additional person of the year for 2023, who would it be and why? Um, woman of the year for me would be Kim Reynolds. If you look at what she accomplished on her agenda, you don't have to like it at all. I hear your booze. But from a purely analytical standpoint, folks, you look at what the big Kim energy accomplished. She finally got her school choice bill through. I'm just going to keep rolling through this. She got a lot of things checked off her list. Sorry. like, But let's talk about my male, uh, my male person of the year. Uh, that would be 
Brock Purdy, last man selected in the 2021 draft. And uh, yeah, now he is, uh, he's on his way. Hopefully, keep our fingers crossed to the Super Bowl. And by the way, this is a kid who is a, you know, very well-liked, well-known pro athlete. And what does he do on his bye week? He comes to Iowa and he gets in a combine to help with the harvest. Like, you just, you just cannot buy that kind of character. And I'm very proud to call myself a cyclone and have cheered for Brock Purdy. Yeah, I would... It would be absolutely perfect if he'd ever beaten Iowa. <laughs> oh. Burn. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, you know, I, as I think about it, uh, and not wanting to be on the naughty list, I think Santa Claus should be the, should be the uh, person of the year. I mean, it's the one person we can kind of all agree on that isn't terrible. All right, well, that's all the time we have for tonight. Thanks for joining us for Pints and Politics. And thank you for spare time entertainment for the great Thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. out tonight. Pints and Politics recorded yesterday evening, December 7th, at Spare Time Entertainment in Cedar Rapids before a live audience. My co-host was Gazette reporter Aaron Jordan. Our panelists, Todd Dorman, Althea Cole, and Tom Barton, all of the Gazette. Our producer and audio editor today, Danny Gear, sound engineer, Jim Davies. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.